0: Letter Streets, we are almost to the end of our series in the book of Jonah. It's been fun. We've got this Sunday and one more to go. I'm recognizing that uh, in the congregation today, we have our C3 kids. Anyone from C3, want to? I've got this microphone, I'll bring it to you. Anyone from C3 want to tell me the gist of the Jonah story? What are the, some of the big things that you remember from the Jonah story? Anyone want to yell out anything? Raise your hands. Bring this over. Aiden, you got something? Come on, meet me halfway, bro. I'm old. What do you got? What do you remember from Jonah? Um, if you don't trust that God, if you don't trust in God of like what's happening, if he asks for you to something that you may think is not good, but God has a plan. Oh, wow. You want to preach tonight? No. Okay. That's pretty good. Pretty good stuff. Thank you, Aiden. That's really good. Very insightful. What else do you remember about the story? What's kind of, you know, what happens in the story? What are some of the plot points? Anyone else remember that? You, you don't have to be C3. I guess I'll give some of you other folks. Oh, Ruby. Yeah. Yeah, go for it, girl. He ran away from God. Yeah, he ran away from God. Um, when God commanded him to go to Nineveh, that's right. And then what happened? Anyone else? What happened when, when Jonah ran away from God? Corey, what happened? Well, he got on a ship, and then there was a huge storm, and uh, the, the crew was going to throw him overboard. Absolutely, yeah. Crews going to throw him overboard. I'll help us along. They throw him overboard. Anyone else? What what happens next? Anyone remember? Oh, Luke, what you got, buddy? Uh, after he gets thrown overboard, um, he gets swallowed by the whale. Yeah, and then what happens? Um, then he gets spit out after yeah. telling God um, that he was sorry. Yeah, awesome. Thank you, Luke. Yeah, so of course he gets swallowed by the, the fish or the whale or the sea monster or whatever it is. Everybody likes the part where he gets puked, especially if you're a middle school kid or something, or a 48 year old, uh, I like that too. Uh, and then, you know, that from, for a lot of people, maybe not for our amazing Lettered Streets crew, but for a lot of people, that's sort of where the story ends in, in our minds and kind of our, the popular thinking of the Jonah story. A lot of people who never read the Bible sort of have heard of Jonah, they know there's this big fish and this prophet guy, and he gets eaten and he gets spit out, and woohoo, that's a big thing. Some people um, who might have read their Bible recently or something might get to chapter three or then, well, then he actually does go back to Nineveh, right? He goes to Nineveh and the, they might even remember that the Ninevites, this crazy pagan, violent people, they repent. Uh, they you might remember that part, but very few people remember chapter four, the, the last chapter. And, and that's the chapter that we're going to be looking at over the next Sundays. And I, I'm just going to tell you how I'm going to do this. I'm going to take the first five verses of chapter four tonight, and we're going to focus in on uh, on Jonah and his response and see what we can learn from Jonah's response. It's a tale of what not to do uh, sort of thing. And then next week is Christ the King Sunday. And what I'm going to do is focus on the character of God in the remainder of chapter four, which I think is what the book of Jonah is actually about. So that'll be a good way for us to um, to finish the book together. So we're gonna be in chapter four, the least known, uh, at least in popular culture, about Jonah. And I'm gonna invite God, uh, the Holy Spirit, to open our hearts and minds. And so Lord, I trust that you've um, been with us already. You uh, know that we're about ready to encounter your word through the book of Jonah. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts and our minds to not only receive information, Uh, but to listen to what you're saying to us through the prophet and his book. Amen. If you know me at all, you know that I have kids who play soccer. And yesterday, I was out at the soccer fields, like I am often on Saturdays, watching Samara play. Her and her team playing their hearts out. And I will just confess to you that I am often horrified at the thoughts and the emotions that I experience on the sideline. I am 48 years old, a follower of Jesus, a pastor, a spiritual director, and I think I'm genuinely like a kind and loving person, right? I hope you experience me in that way. But I'm out there watching 10 and 11 year olds play soccer and I'm thinking the craziest stuff. Like when our team has the ball and we're moving up the field in the attacking third, I feel outraged every time that other team touches or bumps our kids. I'm just moved the whole rug here. Uh, I, I'm just like, oh, that was a foul, right? And I, just, I want every call. I want it to go our way. But whenever we're defending, I want, I want some hard push that kid out of the bounds, you know? I want him to be tough and I don't like it when we get the calls our way. There's this one girl on the other team yesterday who's head and shoulders taller than the rest of our kids and she could use her body so well. She was a really good player, so she would shield the ball and she was kind of pushy and awesome. I mean, this is someone else's daughter. Again, a fifth or sixth grader at at the oldest, probably a great kid and I'm thinking somebody needs to take her out. Sweep the leg, Johnny! (laughs) I mean, I'm horrible. I'm just confessing to you the things that go the way. Hopefully, generally, I don't say those things out loud. In fact, at the high school soccer games, a group of parents, we take turns buying whole big bags of Tootsie Pops so that we stick them in our mouths so we don't talk as much on the sideline. (laughs) I guess my point in telling this self-deprecating story is that I have a double standard. I really do. I want justice from the ref for my players, and I want it to go my way the other end of the field too. In the book of Jonah, we encounter a story that says and does lots of things, but if it says anything, it reveals a double standard. It's the way the book works. The way it works is it's supposed to expose our double standard as well. We're supposed to be reading Jonah as a mirror almost to our own life. To understand kind of the depths of the book of Jonah, it's helpful to understand just a little bit about the prophet himself and his relationship to God, his relationship to his country, and his relationship to his king. In the Bible, Jonah is not only mentioned in the book of Jonah, He's also mentioned in one of the historical books, the book of 2 Kings. And we learn that he's a prophet of God serving a king in Israel. And at that time, roughly the 8th century BC, Israel, as we know it, was split into two pieces. And so you had the southern kingdom, which was called Judah, the capital in Jerusalem, that's the line of David. And then you have the northern kingdom, which was in Samaria. And that is where Jonah was a prophet. He was a prophet in the north, for a king named Jeroboam the second. Now, there were also other prophets besides Jonah at the same time, working at the same time that he was, also in the northern kingdom, also under King Jeroboam. Some of their names are Hosea and Amos. And if you're looking in the Bible at the book of Jonah, if you just went, uh, went backwards a few pages, you would run into those prophets. The interesting thing is that Jeroboam the was an absolutely evil king. The scriptures say that he reigned for 41 years and did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the evil ways of his father. Other prophets of his day prophesied against Jeroboam II. They declared a day when God would judge Jeroboam II and that foreigners would conquer Israel because of his practices and policies. And throughout all of this, Jonah spoke a different word. Even though the king was guilty of idolatry and leading the nation astray, Jonah was still on a campaign of make Israel great again. He spoke a word that encouraged the king to extend their borders, and that's Bible talk for going to war to take more land. That's what Jonah was saying. I think that's what the Lord is telling you to do. Even though Amos, Hosea, the others are saying like, dude, you need to stop your idolatrous practices. You need to stop your warmongering. God is going to judge you. And here's the interesting thing. Jonah knows that Jeroboam II is evil. He knows he deserves just justice and judgment. And yet God in his mercy, allows a season in which Jonah's word of prophecy stands. The king is able to extend the borders of Israel. God relents from judgment for a season. God gives room for Jeroboam II to be blessed and I think gives him some leash, some room to come to his senses and maybe, maybe to repent of his evil ways. We know from history, unfortunately for Jeroboam II and the northern kingdom of Israel, that that repentance just didn't come. Eventually, Israel would fall to foreign invaders. In particular, you can guess who they are. It's the Assyrians, the Ninevites themselves would eventually come and conquer the northern kingdom. And the reason I give you this short history lesson is that Jonah was a witness to the kindness and undeserved mercy of God toward him and toward Jeroboam II. Okay, he was a witness to that. Jonah knew that his king deserved the judgment of God, and yet God relented out of mercy and compassion. Now, let's reconsider the book of Jonah, okay? um, Jonah has been sent to Nineveh, the arch enemies of Israel during his day. He's, he's sent there to proclaim a message of potential judgment. Forty days and Nineveh will either repent or be destroyed. That's the message that Jonah is sent to proclaim to Nineveh. And Jonah is so aware of God's grace and kindness to him, to him and to Israel that he doesn't even want to go to Nineveh because... In the off one in a million chance that the Ninevites inconceivably would repent, Jonah knows in his heart of hearts that his God is so compassionate and kind that he would forgive them and relent from judgment. And Jonah cannot stand that variable. Sure enough, as we see in Jonah chapter 3, not only did the Ninevites receive Jonah's message, But the king of the Assyrians himself called for national repentance, a turning from their violence. And at the end of chapter three, we we read these words When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity or destruction uh, which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Okay, let's dovetail right until our text this evening, Jonah 4, 1 through 5. Now this greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said when I was in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall all of this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me. Death is better than this. And the Lord said, I wish I could be this patient when my kids are being butts. But he said, do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah, notice he doesn't even respond to that question, went out from the city. He went east of it, and there he made a shelter for himself. He sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. Let me just walk through the text briefly. I'm going to start with the phrase, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. The, the NIV actually says, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, <laughs> and he became angry. Now, what these English translations don't tell us is that in Hebrew, there's a, a, there's, he, is the, the word evil is used twice. So, if a real literal translation was, doesn't flow in English, which is why no one translates it this way, it, it would literally say, but it was evil, very evil to Jonah, and he became angry. Now, I just want you to notice that in the very beginning of the book of Jonah, in the first verse, uh, it said that God recognized or saw the evil of the Ninevites, and so he sent Jonah there to proclaim a word against it. You know, I've told you about the Ninevites, how they just horribly violent and would torture people and cut off parts of their body and stick those parts of the body in their mouth and then... Yeah, they're they're sick. I mean, this is all rated R stuff that they would do. And and, and they really were evil. God uses evil one time to describe the Ninevites. And and, and what Jonah's doing here in the sentence is saying, like, your kindness to the Ninevites is evil, evil. It's twice as evil as you think they are for all their violence. He's basically saying, God, your kindness is double evil to the Ninevites. If there was ever any ambiguity at this point about why Jonah fled from Yahweh's command to go to Nineveh, Jonah clears it up right here. It's because Jonah, as a recipient of God's grace, by the way, as a member of Israel who only exists because of God's grace, like God's grace to Abraham and God's grace to Isaac, And God's grace to Jacob, none of whom deserved any kindness or or grace, right? Um, God's grace through Moses and the Exodus and to Joshua and to Ruth and to David. Jonah knew all about God's grace because he literally existed because of God's grace. And yet, he could not stand the idea that God might extend that same grace to the national enemies of Israel. In fact, he's so angry that he'd rather die than to see, than to stay alive and to see the Ninevites be forgiven. And God simply says, like, Jonah, do you you have any good reason to be angry? In other words, do you think your double standard is justifiable? I extend grace to you and to Israel? Should I not also extend grace to people who repent and seek forgiveness? Note that nowhere in the story is the author or God ever advocating for cheap grace. This isn't a moral free for all. Like God's compassion and willingness to relent is tied to the repentance of the Ninevites. The Ninevites were absolutely violent. They were a murderous culture. They were horrible. The Ninevites deserved judgment for sure. But then they repented. They realized their sin. The king declared the ceasing of violence, and cried out for mercy. And I also just want to observe that Jonah, while he's in the belly of that fish or creature, or whatever we want to call it, you know, he, he thanks God for saving him. He never repents. He never says like, I was wrong or anything like that. And yet he is saved by God. Well, in the story, Jonah doesn't even give an answer to God's question about whether or not he's justified being angry. He just huffs and heads east. And in the Old Testament in particular, whenever someone heads east, that's like, you know, in those old-timey movies where it's like, dun-dun-dun. That's what you want to hear when someone heads east. Starting with the Garden of Eden, the people were expelled to the east, and then it just gets bad. You know bad things are going to happen when people head east east. And so he heads east of Nineveh. He sets up shop and he wants to wait the 40 days out. This is how sick Jonah is. Just in case they screw it up and God does judge him. He just wants to see, he wants a front row seat. Okay. So we can see all throughout the book of Jonah that this is a book of extremes. Remember I, I've mentioned before how that word in Hebrew, gadol, which we, um, we translate as great or greatly, it's used 14 times in 58, ver- there's only 58 verses in Jonah. It's used 14 times, right? So there's a story of extremes because we've got a great evil and great storms and a great sea creature, a great reversal of normalities where pagan, a pagan crew on a ship relate more righteously to God than Jonah, the Israelite prophet. And we have a great repentance of the Ninevites met with even greater grace of God. And Jonah is exposed as having a great, unashamed double standard. And I guess my question from this point on, that's kind of the unpacking of the text in a broad overview. My question for us as we wrestle with it is, why is this in the Bible? Why is this in the Bible? Who is the ideal audience for this story? And I guess one of the answers to that question is, whose scriptures include the book of John? And the answer to that question is Jewish people and Christian people. The story is made for Jewish people and Christian people. People who claim to have a special relationship with God. And it seems to be in the Bible, not just to like, tell an amazing story, but to address us directly. The fact is that Jonah did have a special relationship with God. You know, Not only was he a prophet, but he was part of Israel, a people who have a special covenant with God. God made promises to Israel. Promises to bless them and protect them and to work in and through the line of David to produce a Messiah who would bring his reign on earth as it is in heaven. Those are big promises. And sometimes when you have a special relationship like that, it's easy to become privileged, self-righteous. It's easy to assume that even though, you know, I've got some issues, and even though you need God's grace from time to time, you're not nearly as bad as those people who don't know God at all, who don't have a special relationship with God. You might remember Jonah's prayer in the belly of the sea creature. It's all of chapter 2 in the book of Jonah. And he recognizes that God has used this animal, the sea creature, to rescue him, even though he was disobedient even though he didn't deserve rescue. And he says some pretty great things about God. But then he can't help himself. And before the end of that prayer, he lobs this parting shot. He just says like out of the blue, those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. I will sacrifice to you with a, with a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And like, who's he talking about here? He's talking about those nasty sailors and those Ninevites. Jonah is literally rejoicing in God's undeserved salvation of him, but then he's saying something to the effect of, at least I'm not as bad as those guys. Can you believe those idol worshipers? I may make some mistakes and need rescuing from time to time, but those guys are lost. They don't even know you. They don't have a covenant relationship with you. And Jonah still doesn't get it. He's been humbled, right? He recognizes that he needed rescue, but he's still holding on to his pride as an Israelite, as a prophet, as a man who's not like those other people. Why is the book of Jonah also studied in the Christian Bible? Why isn't it included in the Christian Bible? Because we also live with double standards. We also struggle with self-righteousness. Our scripture reading tonight that Tim read was from Matthew 18, the parable of the, the king. And you've got these two, two people that, that owe debts, right? And this wicked servant, Jesus told this parable because we are prone to receive God's grace for ourselves while dishing out judgment, like sometimes minutes later, an hour later, the the same day, right? It just happens so naturally. Our sense of self-righteousness might not be as extreme as the characters in Matthew 18 or in the book of Jonah, but it doesn't take much imagination for us to, to kind of put ourselves in a scenario where like, yeah, actually, I well... On the soccer field. I've got a double standard. And you've probably got your zones too, where it comes right up like, yeah, I've got one. You know, it's easy to be generous and peaceful and magnanimous when you are alone <laughs> or when you're around people who just are a lot like you, right? Uh, but guess what? It's the holiday season. And that means a lot of us are going to be with people we wouldn't always choose to hang out with, right? Uh, For many of us, that that might mean getting together with extended family or enduring busy shopping centers and restaurants, extra traffic, and heaven forbid, you've got to do air travel. Good luck with that. And think of all the ways it would be easy to be self-righteous in those situations. You know, there's the people that you're going to get together with that you don't agree on the politics with. You know, if only they were as enlightened as I am. You know, and there's the people that um, um, that make you batty on the freeway. They should all get out of my way, right? <laughs> like, it's my way, right? Uh, uh, siblings, you know, school. You may not like school that much, but you know what happens when there's no school. You're all together and you get on each other's nerves, right? So there's, there's, there's ways to get self-righteous about that. There's combat shopping at the grocery store where you curse under your breath when the person takes the last box of stuffing. But if you would have been there, you'd have taken the last box yourself. No big deal. And, you know, some of these examples, well, all of them really are sort of silly and low-hanging fruit. But I just bring them up to sort of get us thinking about how easily we can walk in double standard. We all have those things, though, don't we, that aren't so trivial and aren't so silly. Deep-seated feelings of judgment towards certain groups of people, certain people in our lives, and maybe we have some very real difficulties with certain family members or people that we're going to see that that are really genuinely hard to be around. Some might actually be toxic and bad for you. And I just want to, pause and and, and give us a moment of silence to consider where you might be holding a double standard with someone or a group of people or some situation in your life. Maybe something that's coming up that you're anxious about. Um, Who is it easy to judge in your very real life? Let's just take a moment and think about what are we to do? What are we to do, actually, when we feel this judgmental attitude? When we feel or experience our own self-righteousness? What do we do when we want to hold other people to a standard that we ourselves might be crushed by? I want to kind of close out this time as we sit under the teaching of Jonah to suggest maybe three really basic steps that I'm I'm assuming that they're so basic that you will nuance them for your situation, Because okay? uh, there's no one size fits all on this kind of thing. But, but three just kind of basic ways that I've been thinking about it this week uh, as I encounter Jonah. And um, I think the first step, something I'm really working on personally, is to embrace the reality that we do practice a double stand, right? That we are a lot of times self-righteous people, that I am a lot of times self-righteous in the way I think about people, and the way I think about situations, and the way I think about the world. And something I'm, I've known intellectually, but I'm more and more trying to put on and live into is the reality that part, you know, part of the Christian life, it isn't, it isn't all celebration and victory and uh, uh, great gatherings and stuff like that. Part of the Christian life is the slow, painful process of dying to my own pride, dying to my own ego. That is like a major part of the pilgrimage of the Christian life. Being a Christian is not about being right. It's about being rightly related. I know that just sounds like a soundbite, but It really is true. It's not so much about being right, like having all the right theology and checking all the boxes. It's about being rightly related to God and to people. Being a follower of Jesus is not about perfection. It is knowing how desperately we need the grace of God and his perfect love. Self-righteousness, that's the attitude that leads to living a double standard. That is the false belief that you and I, by our own effort, can get to a place where we are morally, ethically, Intellectually, maybe physically better than others, and therefore simply better than others. Self righteousness is the little lie that, that, that we can believe and do the things necessary to be rightly related to God. Self righteousness is the lie that we can believe the right things and do the right things necessary to be rightly related to God, that somehow we can do it better than our neighbor. And if we can just do it better than our neighbor, then we can feel good about ourselves. It's kind of like that old cliche of like, well, you don't have to outrun the bear, you just have to be faster than the other people you're with, right? Like it's, it's that, that's kind of the self-righteous motif. And I think the antidote to self-righteousness starts with exposing our double standards. It begins with paying attention and owning the ways in which we withhold grace from people in some areas of our lives, while expecting grace for ourselves. Of course, awareness is just the beginning. The second, I think the second step, once you're living into this awareness of where I am holding people to a double standard, of where I am being self-righteous. The next step is is to ask for help. I know that that's trivial. And I bet you we all do that. Oh, God, help me here. I'm stepping into the door to the in-laws or the family gathering or whatever it is. But like really ask for help. Jesus, you know, he already knows, it's not a newsflash to him, that we struggle with pride. I mean, he already knows we're insecure in some areas, self-righteous and judgmental in others. And our most horrible thoughts about other people don't surprise Jesus at all. They don't surprise him at all. And that's why we can ask him for help. It's not like our asking for help is gonna surprise him or like uh, show him something of our dark side that he didn't know before. Willing ourselves, willing ourselves to do better It's just not going to have lasting results. And I'm a big guy. That's one of my pride things. I pride myself with willpower. (laughs) I've overcome a lot of things in my willpower. But it always crumbles over time. I just can't keep it up. Um, You can't will yourself to lasting results. But recognizing our bias and our double standard can then invite the Holy Spirit to help us love To show us how to be empathetic. And sometimes we might need that prompting of the Holy Spirit to know, hey, I'm not ready for this encounter. Like you might have real people in your life that are not just difficult, but they might be toxic for you, like triggering in a real way, not just like how everyone uses that when they're a little bit like ticked off. But, But like you, the Holy Spirit might give you permission to say, you know, it's going to be healthier for you if you just don't engage in those ways. And that, that, that's an incredible freedom uh, that God can give. And there's a difference between someone who annoys you or, or, or triggers you in little ways. And then there's, there's people who are really, really dangerous for your health. You are not called to be the Messiah. Some of us need to hear that. like, You're not called to save people or to fix them, or to be the family Christian. I know some of us, uh, or some of you might be in households or, or, or larger families where you're the Christian and maybe other people aren't Christians, and so you might think like, you know, I just really need to show Jesus' love to these people. You're not the Messiah. And maybe asking for help, Jesus might free you from the guilt of feeling like you have to be the Messiah. I'm so glad. It's not my job to change people. And what I'm finding is that when I ask for help from God in those areas where I hold a double standard, he shows me not only uh, redeeming qualities in other people. Oh, be careful what you ask for. You're going to start loving those annoying people. Uh, I start to see the redeeming qualities in other people, but also the depths of God's love for me. And that's the third, the third step. So there's this recognition, admitting we've got this double standard and the self-righteousness. There's asking for help. And the third thing is to walk, to walk in the grace of Jesus. As soon as we start taking time to reflect on our own double standard and self-righteousness, we realize that we truly need the forgiveness and love of Jesus. You know, in the Jonah story, we can get caught up in all the details of the great fish and all this fantastic stuff, but one of the subtle but persistent and important details is look at how patient God is with Jonah's frustrating tantrums. This is a grown man, a prophet of God, who's acting like you know, like the worst tantrum you can imagine. In the parable of the king who forgives the great debtors, the king forgives the man who owed more money than he could possibly pay back in his lifetime. Do you know, those two stories, the Jonah story, and even Jesus' parable, uh, Parable. Th- those, are, those are stories that happened before the cross and the resurrection, right? We have an even better story, a true story. Jesus so wants us to walk in his grace and forgiveness that he, he gave his life for us on the cross, defeated death and the resurrection, Ascended to the place of authority over the world and over our futures in the ascension. And then He, the Father, sent us the Holy Spirit to empower us and to remind us of our identity of uh, uh, being in Christ. Not an identity of self righteousness, but an identity of real righteousness. Because through Christ, We're rightly related to God. We have the grace of God. And when we repent, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to relent and to receive us in love. And in fact, as we prepare now to move to the table, the meal that Jesus hosts, let's take a moment, let's take a moment to silently confess our own self-righteousness, to ask for help and to receive the grace of God.